Before we start this episode of the podcast, I just want to share with you a program we've developed to help brewing industry businesses adversely affected by shutdowns for COVID-19. Our Craft Beer and Brewing Cares grant program will award $25,000 advertising credits to brewing-related businesses like breweries, manufacturers, ingredient suppliers, and more who've seen their businesses suffer over the past few weeks. Go to beerandbrewing.com slash grant to learn more and fill out the quick application. Uh, award recipients will be notified April 10th, 2020. No one thing is going to fix the wide-ranging negative impact of global shutdowns, but we hope this program can help some businesses through this difficult time. Now, on to this week's podcast, which, to reassure you, was recorded about a month ago before social distancing became the norm. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine, Jamie Bogner. I'm here in Richmond, Virginia, sitting in a small, nondescript, speakeasy-style warehouse filled to the brim with wooden barrels full of traditional sour uh, and wild beer, brewed by my guest on the podcast today, Matt Tarpey, co-founder and head brewer for The Vale. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Thank you for having me. I really wanted to pronounce it Tarpe, but uh, I'm gonna, I really I'm gonna, wish you would have. I'm going to stick with Tarpe on okay. that one. We're going to talk to Matt about all sorts of brewing uh, focuses for the brewery. If you're familiar with the Vale, you know that they specialize in everything from spontaneous and wild beers to uh, cutting edge hazy IPAs, imperial stouts, and barrel aged barley wines filled with all manner of fun and silly and engaging ingredients. Um, we're going to kind of cross the spectrum of brewing with Matt today and uh, and kind of get into the fun, get into the crazy, get into the uh, serious and traditional and historical kind of approaches. And, uh, you know, and I'm looking forward to having a conversation about brewing with that, Matt. I'm looking forward to it, too. Cool. Before we start the conversation, is the brewing industry's premier choice for glycol chilling. G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, reliability, and dedication to their customers' craft. Thinking outside the box, whether it's a simple relocation of the utility connections for a complex buildup or ground-level design and engineering, G&D is ready to meet the challenge. They're big enough to produce and small enough to care. Call G&D Chillers to discuss your project today or reach out directly at gdchillers.com. Also, kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. Old Orchard knows that a strategic seasonal release calendar means higher margins, increased taproom traffic, and secured shelf space for your brand. That's why they collaborate with countless breweries on product development conversations year-round. With unique flavors like watermelon, rhubarb, pineapple, and plum, the possibilities are endless. Get your Old Orchard sample kit with a free six-pack cooler at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. A reminder before we get started, Craft Beer and Brewing's all-access subscriptions give you a year of the print and digital editions of the magazine, plus access to our library of video courses, special deep dive email only for all-access subscribers, premium content, and all-access exclusive merchandise. Go to beerandbrewing.com, click on the subscribe button, join now, support our mission to bring you the insights from some of the best and most creative brewers around the world. Speaking of those creative insights from fantastic brewers, Matt, let's talk about brewing. Let's do it. So uh, the way we normally kick things off here is with a little bit of discussion about your brewing history. Um, talk to me about how you got into brewing and what path you took to lead right here and founding the, co-founding The Veil. Okay. Um, so I got into brewing on accident. Um, I never really wanted to get into brewing. Um, I never homebrewed in my entire life. Um, 
I started volunteering at a local regional brewery down in Norfolk, Virginia, um, called O'Connor Brewing Company back in their inaugural uh, year in 2010. And I would volunteer from 5 a.m. to 7 a.m. Then I'd go work my day job, 7 to 3.30 uh, or 4. And then I'd go back to the brewery and work 4 to 7 p.m. And I did that five days a week um, for about six months. And then Oof. the owner felt bad for me and was like, hey, why don't you just come on board and we'll pay you what you're making down there so you don't have to come come in so early. And uh, uh, yeah, so... Started working there full time um, in April 2011. Um, so I started volunteering there just as a kind of something to do on the side. I, wanted, I was interested in learning a little bit more about brewing, but I thought it would sure. just be kind of a fun volunteer opportunity, right. um, get some free beer out of it, and um, just do something different. I was actually trying to uh, be a firefighter at the time, and I was just working my normal sure. construction job uh, right. for Awning Company. Um, and yeah, so I started working there, volunteering. I really fell in love with the industry, um, the, the process and just being in a brewery, um, and everything involved with beer making. It was so intrigued with the right. process, uh, asking a lot of questions, all that. Um, and just fell in love with it. Absolutely. Just from the volunteer opportunity that I had. Um, so in 2011, I started April 2011. I started full time at O'Connor Brewing Company. I was a, a just a shift brewer, and um, I would brew four or five days a week. And under um, the head brewer at the time, Jimmy Walsh, and um, yeah, I worked there for just about until the end of 2011. A friend of mine who was the former head brewer of O'Connor, uh, his name Chris O'Connor, he had a friend and connection with Todd Mott, who worked at Portsmouth Brewery in uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire. Um, a very famous uh, New England brew pub, very uh, well known for the Kate, Kate the Great. Great. Yeah. Yeah. I actually reached out to Chris to reach out to Todd Mott to see if I could just uh, do like a two-week internship with him, sure. uh, just so I can learn, ask questions, be around a different uh, brewing environment in a, in a place that brewed multiple styles. Um, so he called and he said, yes, of course, you can come apprentice with or do an apprenticeship or internship with me. Um, but if, and then he told Chris, uh, but if your friend is looking for a job, um, funny you're calling me is because my assistant just put his notice in. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's good timing. Uh, yeah, so I had no resume, so I frantically Sometimes went home. Sometimes it's better to be lucky than good. Right? <laughs> exactly. So I frantically went home and wrote a resume really quick <laughs> and fired it off via email. I uh, got a phone call back from Todd, and uh, he was like, oh, you really want to drive from Virginia to Portsmouth, New Hampshire, to do a working interview with me? And I was like, oh, yes, of course, I'll do it. Um, so I did that. Um, I was one of six people to uh, try out for the job. I was the only person that didn't that wasn't fresh out of brewing school. Hmm. Um, I was the only person who didn't homebrew too. It was just a great day of brewing and uh, asking questions and getting our hands dirty, and uh, we really kind of bonded that day. And um, yeah, so it was just kind of fun. And uh, came back home. Todd kind of left me uh, on hold there for a minute. <laughs> I was like, "Is he ever going to call me back?" You know, um, and so kind of funny story um i've been trying for years i'm trying to make this quick so we can get into some fun stuff but um i funny story is i was trying for years and years to be a firefighter and it was very difficult to be a firefighter in hampton roads virginia um so i i kind of gave up on the process once i started being a, a, sh a shift brewer at o'connor because i fell in love with it and then i got this opportunity to work with todd mott so um i went and did my working interview on hold waiting for Todd to call me back and let me know either way. 
Um, and I actually got a phone call from the Chesapeake Fire Department saying that, you know, we didn't do testing this year, but we want to offer you a position in the academy. Um, and I was shocked. I didn't see that coming. And um, they gave me four hours to make my decision. Um, <laughs> and uh, everyone I talked to, family and friends, were like, go with your gut. And my gut was that I was going to try my hardest to make it work with Todd and hopefully follow up with him and do yeah. do right by him. Um, so uh, on Christmas Day, uh, Christmas Eve day, Chris, Todd Mock gave me a call and uh, gave me the, offered me the position. Uh, he thought it was a nice gesture to offer me something on Christmas Eve, but I thought it was misery that I had to wait uh, three weeks to, oh. to hear back from him. And turn down an opportunity <laughs> at the fire academy exactly. in the process. Yeah, uh, so, uh, but uh, and ultimately I was definitely uh, great. Uh, grateful for that, for that opportunity. Um, so moved up to uh, New Hampshire, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, yeah. and uh, started January 2012 with Todd Mop. Uh, had an amazing time working at Portsmouth Brewery. Learned so much. We brewed so many different styles of beer, different types of yeast. I mean, at the previous brewery I was working at, one type of ale yeast. Right, that's it. Right. So we got to experiment with all these different types of Belgian yeast, all that stuff. Uh, you know, we had very simplistic uh, grain bills at the former brewery. Uh, so just learning a lot about different malts sure, and all that sure. stuff was super intriguing to me and exciting. Um, so one day, uh, sitting with Todd in the Jimmy Palooza Lounge, which is like the basement bar at Portsmouth Brewery, and uh, Todd Mott uh, sat me down and tears in his eyes, and um, he said, Matt, I knew you just moved up to um, New Hampshire to come work for me, and but I'm leaving Portsmouth Brewery. I'm going to go uh, start my own brewery. And uh, he uh, is really emotional for both of us because I just moved my whole life sure, up here sure. for this opportunity. Um, so then I, you know, as determined as I am, it's like, okay, so what's next for me? I'm, I can't stay here. I moved to work with Todd right. and he's not going to be open for a while. So maybe I'll be able to work with him later, but what's next? Sure. Um, so I, uh, just asked around and I actually, um, uh, tried to get a job at Allagash and that didn't work. Um, and then I had met Jim, John Kimmick from the Alchemist while I was at, um, um, working at, Portsmouth Brewery because we did a collaboration for the Vermont Brewers Festival that Portsmouth Brewery uh, always participated in annually. Yeah. Um, so I asked John if uh, I had heard through the grapevine he was hiring or some guy that he was going to have be his third shift brewer uh, ended up leaving or something. So right. I reached out to him and I was like, hey, are you going to be hiring? And he was like, matter of fact, I am. <laughs> uh, would you like to come and interview? So yeah. I went and interviewed with him and um, yeah, so, uh, and that was in the fall, uh, early, just about the end of fall, early winter of 2012. Yeah. And I went and interviewed with him at Waterbury, and he showed me all around the brewery and all that stuff. And uh, it, I was really uh, anxious and uh, hopeful, um, but I didn't know how it was going to go. So at the end, he brought me into the office and asked me a bunch of questions, and I, I was starting to, uh, you know, trying to give him my spiel about why you should hire me right, you know? right. and um, I said to him uh, you know so if you guys do decide to hire me um, you know I started my conversation with that and then he he butted in and he was like whoa whoa whoa, whoa. we're we're gonna hire you I mean that's why I called you to come here <laughs> this whole time I thought I was on an interview yeah but it was like a, it was oh, just kind of a walk this is your introduction yeah, yeah, yeah apparently you're yeah. hired yeah so yeah. that was a friendly uh, friendly uh, or a pleasant surprise, I suppose. Sure. Um, so decided to move to Vermont, um, 
moved in December, started basically on my birthday of, of 2012, working at Alchemist as the third shift brewer. Yeah. Backtrack a little bit, back to the summer, the first festival, Shelton Brothers, the festival happened in Massachusetts, um, right. where they brought all the European brewers over from, uh, or all actually brewers from all over the world sure, were there sure. to pour their beer. Um, that's where I met uh, Jean Benoit, the uh, master brewer um, of Kentium. Um, so I met him while I was there. I asked him, uh, I, I said, if I were to come over to Belgium, would you let me work with you and just learn from you, ask questions and hang out with you? And uh, he kind of looked at me shocked and uh, he said to me, if you come to Belgium, you can come work with me. And I was blown away, you know. Um, uh, <laughs> so I was like, okay, yeah, that's amazing. And then he was like, um, yeah, but I can't pay you. And I was like, oh, no need. I don't need money. I just want to come over there and ask questions and be able to learn, you know. And because um, I was super intrigued at Lambic at the time, as we, we all were, I guess, or still are. I still am. Sure, sure. Um, and uh, he said to me, uh, yeah, but we can open special bottles and, you know, all that stuff. <laughs> and I was like, oh, great. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. That'd be perfect. So I asked him, you know, oh, can I get your uh, contact, you know? And he was like, yeah, write this down. And I was just like, oh, great. He just gave me, like, the most generic email ever. He's probably going to get 7 million emails from all the people he met this weekend. You know, he's never going to write me back. So I waited a week. I played it cool, you know, like a first date. You know, you don't right, want right. to, like, just, like, message desperate. him the same sure, day, you sure. know? So uh, I, I, wrote, I wrote him an email. Seven days, man. You, yeah, you're playing the game hard. Yeah, yeah. So I, I wrote him an email, and uh, he actually wrote me back almost immediately and said uh you know i met hundreds of people this weekend but i remember you and please come and be my guest so um actually my wife and i um we went and so we planned it we we were poor we had no money <laughs> we yeah, were, we were sure, assistant sure. brewer at, at a brew pub um and she we'd moved our life up from virginia to New Hampshire, and, um, and now we, she's like, "Oh yeah, we're gonna go spend some time in Europe now." Sure, yeah, sure, she, Matt. She was excited, actually. Oh, you know, okay. so, uh, but we uh, we just asked when we had our wedding. We decided to uh, in back in 2012, we had our um, we we decided to uh, just elope so we could save some money. Um, we asked, we said, we don't want any gifts. Just anybody, just give us money because we're trying to do a trip or something. Right. You know, even if it's five dollars, I'd rather have five dollars than two toasters. You know what I mean? And so you took your honeymoon money and you went and worked at Cantillon in Belgium with that on our honeymoon. Yeah. On your honeymoon. Yeah. So I spent my honeymoon <laughs> working at Cantillon for two weeks. Oh man, um, that's just, true love right there. Yeah. So it's she's a keeper. John John never lets me lets that down. And so and his mom gave me gave us chocolates and all this stuff it was actually pretty <laughs> sweet but uh, anyway so yeah. i ended up doing a internship my first internship i did i've done three so far um i did a two-week internship in january one end of 2013 while i was working at the alchemist yeah. upon my return that's when i started brewing so i was brewing at the alchemist amazing place to work great sure. people incredible beer at that time that was right around the time that on beer advocate it was rated the number one beer right, in the world right um so it was as hyped as it could ever be um and i i love the beer and i love the process sure um and again i kind of felt it, it, they they took care, great care of their employees um you know they made it so you didn't have to work 60 hours a week right, you know right. so you know i was working four days a, a week and then every third week i'd work a friday for a few hours 
Um, so I was kind of, again, I was kind of feeling at that time I was spinning my wheels, only making one beer over right, and right. over and over. Uh, it's incredible beer, but just making one beer over and over. <laughs> sure, wasn't learning sure. again. Um, so I actually met Sean Hill um, at the Oxbow um, Welcome to Vermont um, event at Three Penny Tap Room. And um, he was like, oh, yeah, I know I've heard about you. you. You know, I know Todd and, you know, you work at you. I heard you went to Cantillon, all that stuff. So we met. He was like, oh, come by the brewery. I'll show you around. And um, so I, I went over there and got some beer and hung out one time. And then I just asked them, I kept in touch with them and asked. I was like, hey, I, I don't really do anything on Fridays. You know, it would be cool if I came around and just like hung out. I, I'll squeegee the floors. I'll just bottle beer, do whatever you need. And kind of back to square one, right? Where I'm just like volunteering and trying to learn and just ask questions and just yeah. be involved with the right, process right. and see something different, right? Never done anything with barrels at that point in my life. I had never done anything really with wild beer um, other than just the apprenticeship with Cantillon. Um, so he let me do that. Um, I did that for a while, um, like a couple months. And then um, Dan Suarez, his assistant at the time, left to start his own brewery, sure. Suarez Family Brewery, um, incredible brewery from New York. Um, and uh, yeah, so he left to start his own brewery. And then Sean was like, hey, do you want to be my assistant? And so of course, I was like, yes, of course, I'd love to. I'd love <laughs> yeah. to learn more sure. and be involved sure. with barrel-aged beer and all that stuff. That's, that's and, an offer you can't refuse. Yeah. So that's how I started working at sure. Hill Farmstead. And that was in the summer of 2013. Um, so, uh, a few year, a year and some change went by, um, and I, the, almost a year and over a year and a half went by and, um, my, I was kind of just going through the motions and having a great time learning a lot, working sure. with Sean, um, making some incredible, well, I, I wasn't making the beer. Sean was the brewer and I was, I did everything else. So he, did all the work production and you know he, of course he did other things in the brewery too you'd see him do everything you know he'd be right. bottling beer he'd be filling barrels you know but i kind of did like i was his true assistant you know so i i would you know cip tanks pitch yeast dry hop um do all that stuff you know i'd, I'd extract beer from barrels uh, fill barrels do all the stuff bottle beer and um yeah, so we were just kind of going through the motions. Um, unfortunately, my, my, my wife's father was ill and um, was not doing too well. So she had to move back down to Virginia to help take care of her. Right. And um, by chance, right around that time, I had met this guy from Virginia who was a friend of a friend, um, all by chance. And um, he, you know, we hit it off. He was a cool guy, beer guy, um, and, you know, beer trader, all that stuff. And one day we were chatting and he was like, you know, I'd like to send you some beers from Virginia, you know, to let you know what Virginia's got going on right now. And he's from Richmond. And um, I was like, yeah, sure. Um, send me some beer. So he sent me some beer. And then um, and then a week later, he's like, oh, did you try the beer? I was like, yeah. He was like, what did you think? And I was like, oh, yeah, um, it was fine. You know, it wasn't bad. You know, it was not bad. And uh so he said to me, he was like, yeah, well, um, you know, somebody, somebody should come to Virginia and make some cool beer. And then I was like, yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. He was like, yeah, you should do it. And I laughed at him. I was like, no, no way. I don't want that. I don't want to be a brewer. I don't want to own my own brewery or be a part of that at all. I don't want to be a part of startup. I've seen startups. I've seen yeah. the stresses, the hair pulls, the, oh crap, it's 11 o'clock at night and your chiller goes down or something like that. Or, 
um, whatever, just the stresses of money and taxes and all this stuff. I didn't want anything to do with that. Um, so uh, I was just laughed at him about it. And then as things kind of happened to progress with, uh, in, in terms of my family and all that stuff, um, just kind of discussing it with my wife and just being like, Oh, what are we going to do? Um, and she was like, well, we got to move back home. What are we going to do? You know? And I was like, I have this opportunity. I don't know if I should try it, you know? And she was like, let's just talk to the guy and see what he says, you know? So I, I reached back out to him. I was like, Hey, were you serious? And this guy's name's Dustin Durrance. Um, uh, one of my business partners currently. <laughs> um, but uh, he, I figured that was how this was going to resolve. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So he uh, reached out and, uh, or I reached out to him and I was like, Are you serious? And he was like, Yeah, sure. Um, let me give me a week or two. I'm going to call some people and we'll get back to you and see what, what we're, where we're at. A couple of weeks later, he, he was like, Are you serious? And I was like, Yeah, I called you to see if you're serious, you know? And he was like, All right, cool. Well, I have the team. We're fully funded. Fully, fully funded. Let me know when you're ready to move down. <laughs> and I was like, that was quick. I was like, all right, we need to talk more. <laughs> like this is kind of <laughs> sure, crazy. Sure. Yeah. So yeah. we spent a few months, uh, kind of going back and forth on uh, what we wanted to do, business plan, all right, that stuff. Right. They fortunately, um, yeah. So my Dave, D- Dustin Durance got my other main business partner, Dave Michaelo, involved, and we were kind of the core managers of the t- of the the initial startup of the Vale. And um, we spent a lot of time uh, just chatting about what we want to do. And they were very, um, I'm very grateful for this. They were very kind to me about um, uh, being able to have freedom. What do, what do you want to do? Right. What do you think is cool? Right. You know, what kind of beers do you want to make? So they gave me free run to do anything I wanted. Any of the beer names, what size brewery do you want? How do you want to do it? Do you want a tap room? Do you not want a tap room? Um, so they've, they, I'm very fortunate for that first and foremost. So we, we kind of came up with a game plan, came up with the name of the veil, um, which is rooted from my first apprenticeship at Cantillon, which I can talk about later if we want the name, history of the name. And, um, yeah, so that was it. So in May of 2015, I left Hill Farmstead and moved to uh, Richmond, Virginia to start The Veil. Um, first brew of The Veil was in March of 2016. And uh, yeah, now we're here. Now we're here. <laughs> Let's talk a little bit about um, the beers that you brew. But before we do that, the founders launched SS BrewTech with a very clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the very highest standards in the industry. With a team that draws upon strong functional backgrounds in brewing science, mechanical engineering, industrial design, supply chain, and manufacturing, SS BrewTech has the people and skill sets you want and expect from your supplier of pro brewing equipment. Head over to ssbrewtech.com for more information on their brew houses and brewing gear. Also, Fermentis is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. They've provided the beer industry from large and small breweries to home brewers with the best fermentation yeasts since 2003. Their yeasts are easy to use. Just pitch your Fermentis yeast directly into your wort. No rehydration necessary. To learn more about how Fermentis can improve the quality of your fermentation and for the latest on their exciting new product releases, visit Fermentis.com or visit them at the Craft Brewers Conference in San Antonio, Booth 8071. 
So Matt, here we are, and we're in your sour beer only facility. But earlier we were walking through the main brewery and tap room with a little cool ship room at the top where you made that that first spontaneous beer. Right. Um, here you are in the middle of the South in a place that's really hot for a good part of the, part of the year, um, making some sour and funky beer with hundreds and hundreds of barrels of this stuff around us. Um, you know, but it's also that respect for tradition is also balanced against a pretty progressive approach to things like fruited lactose heavy IPAs, um, pastry stouts. You had just tanked, some, you know, something with Oreos into a, <laughs> a, you know, a tote that you were conditioning on. And so, you know, you at times balance both this kind of progressive fun, let's try it and let's, you know, be creative approach with this very traditionally minded, we're going to do this in the most traditional way possible. Um, talk to me a little bit about that kind of yin and yang of your brewing philosophy. Yeah. So, um, yin and yang, that's a good way to put it, I guess. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I mean, life's too short to just be serious and, and like, so focused and I mean, we're, we're focused on everything we do, even yeah. the Oreo yeah. beers, right? We're focused on that, and it's super intense for us, and we're constantly tasting them and trying new ways of incorporating the character and, and different ratios and all that stuff. Wait, you mean it's not just lazy brewing where you throw a bunch of crap in there <laughs> and it just magically turns out into something? Oh, yes. Yeah, it's it's definitely not that, for no. sure. So we're, we're focused on everything that we do, but... Um, uh, we the way that we our business is designed and it's the same way that we that we um kind of take we focus on the way that we brew so it's it's balancing the serious and the fun right so you want to do the beers that you're super focused on and super intrigued by and the beers that you want to drink are a little bit more delicate that you can have two three four five of them right um, like a lager or a mixed fermentation beer, you know, delicate uh, a table beer or something like that. Um, you want to balance that with something that's crazy and wacky and fun, right? So a lot of people, they go to work and they do their work and they're focused and they get their job done. And then on the weekends and at night, they like to cut loose a little bit, right? They want to go play golf or to go on a vacation or, you know, or they, they have a crazy hobby like, you know, drag racing or something like sure. that. You know what I mean? So that's kind of the approach that we have with brewing, right? So we, you know, we, we grind, we folk, we're super focused and, uh, you know, very technique folk, um, oriented and, uh, we love these delicate beers, but we also love the wild, crazy beers. And it's super interesting and fun for us to do a triple fruited Goza or like, you know, double Oreo uh, milk, chocolate milk stout or something like that, you know? Because so it, it forces you to look at things in a different way and for forces sure. you to solve a problem that you don't solve otherwise. For sure, yeah. And it's just learning, right? So, I mean... That how, seems to be a common theme th through your brewing uh, history and experience that yeah. throwing yourselves into... Un throwing yourself into uncomfortable positions or even volunteering at times just to keep the challenge coming. For sure, yeah. I mean, you you can learn by adjunct additions. Oh, you know, you can learn by, you know, brewing a style you've never brewed before, you know. But it, it's all learning, right? So how could you tell me right now if I have a 30-barrel batch of beer, what's the, what's the pounds per barrel uh, ratio that you would suggest for Oreos 
Well, let me check the uh, the label and the spec sheet from the ingredient <laughs> provider, right, right? To look at the uh, you know yes the uh, extraction ratio for these Oreo cookies. Exactly. Yeah. 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 So you don't know. Sure. And so unless sure. you try it, unless yeah. you learn, yeah. you know what I mean. So I'm. I mean, I'm not like the godfather of adjuncts or anything like that. But um, you know, I've definitely have had friends that have reached out to me and been like, "Hey, what would you do for?" Oreos. How much Oreos are you putting in per barrel? Stuff like that, you know. And I, of course, I'm doing the same with my my colleagues too. Sure, um, sure. You know, a, an adjunct I've never tried before. You know, what's your what's your cinnamon rate? You yeah, know? yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. You know, so we're talking about that kind of stuff all the time. What's the strangest thing that you've learned from one of those you know adjunct ingredients? One of the things that threw you for a loop and you know caused you to really knuckle down and figure it out. And then, uh, did you? What did you discover that uh, you know was maybe counterintuitive about it? Hmm, that's very. That's a hard question to answer there. Um, not so much in terms of like issues that I had, but something that was just strange that happened. So yeah. we put a ton of Nutella in a beer one time, uh-huh. like. We had like five gallon buckets of Nutella. We're like scraping Nutella in there, you know, and then <laughs> right, just getting right. really weird with it. And which I love, I love that kind of stuff. And then uh, when we were cleaning the tank, it like coagulated into this like weird like wax that like co- like coated the whole bottom of the tank. And it took us like a whole almost a whole day to get all the stuff out of oh. the tank. Oh. So um, I don't know. That was one weird adjunct thing about that we learned. Um, but yeah, do you simulate Nutella by using hazelnuts and uh, whatnot in a different way now instead of using actual Nutella? We're kind of scarred by Nutella yeah, and yeah. Char- Nutella characteristics now. We're so just done. Yeah, we, we will do hazelnut straight up hazelnut, yeah, yeah. and we say hazelnut, <laughs> and we don't say Nutella anymore. Yeah. We're kind of scarred by hazelnut, but I mean uh, Nutella. But um, if you put that on the schedule board, your brewers look at that and say, "Oh no, oh, no, yeah. no, no, no." Oh yeah, there's definitely like some weird stuff that. Happens happens if you even just say Nutella in the back okay. of the brewery nowadays. Yeah. But um but yeah, so um I don't know. We we've tried like a lot of different things, a bunch of different um we we've tried, you know, marshmallows in every way. You know, you marshmallows on the hot side, marshmallows on the cold side, you know, and in fermentation, knock out on marshmallows, marshmallows on the bright tank, marshmallow extract. We've tried ev- sound like freaking Forrest Gump right now but you know yeah, it was, yeah. it, we've that's what we've done you know we've tried we've experimented what do you like things. the best um you know I I'm partial to straight up vanilla I love vanilla yeah, you know yeah. we use vanilla beans whole vanilla beans and we we just take the beans and just put them into a giant Vitamix and grind them all yeah, up and just yeah. throw them in there you know and but we we will get there specific vanilla types that you really like uh, or origins of vanilla yeah, I mean, I I like Tahitian. I like um, I like Ugandan a lot too. Ugandan's really cool. It, yeah. it kind of has like almost like a tobacco leathery character hmm. to it, um, which I really dig. Um, um, Madagascar is is king still in sure, my opinion. Sure. You know, he gets you that really like marshmallow fluff kind of vibe, and right. um, it's you know. But I'm I'm definitely partial to vanilla for sure. I love coconut. I love coconut beers, like the taste and the smell of coconut. Yeah, but it's so frustrating to work with real coconut because to me to get real coconut character you just have to use a ton of it right and it is just brutal like it there goes your volume number one (laughs) that's right number two it's gonna absorb all your liquids yeah yeah. number two it's just a pain to get out of the tank right number three there's so much 
coconut oil on the ground, everyone's slipping around, even with non <laughs> boots, you know? But, um, but I do love coconut. I just love the smell and the taste. Um, yeah, so I'd say coconut and vanilla. Do you toast it before you add it? Tried every way. Yeah, you know, I've tried toasted. I've tried untoasted. I've tried. <laughs> I tried every single way: hot side, cold side. What do you, which way you want to know? Um, so I, I think. Are the, there some methods that you kind of settled in on, and you know, yeah. stuff that you like? You know, I think for us, we we do untoasted. Okay, we just throw a ton of it sure, in there. Sure. Um, we do untoasted. Um, for me, one of small the, grind, big grind. You know, uh, like macaroon great. kind okay. of like shreds. Yeah. yeah. Um, we have done the coconut flour, you know, we've done coconut and all this stuff, <laughs> sure. you know? but, um, I'd say macaroon like shreds is the un, un yeah, toasted yeah. is our preference. Um, the best, in my opinion, one of the best coconut beers we've ever released was actually a 60, 40 blend of un, un toasted and toasted. Interesting. Um, but it was the worst, like yeah. catastrophic volume loss <laughs> ever. And we all cried a tear because it was like this super special beer. Um, yeah. that yeah. was just like really special to us. It was like three or four years in the making. It was a double barrel oh. beer that we had made that I had yeah. me and Hennick from Omnipoyo dreamt about in his pizza shop in 2016. And then it finally came to fruition and we lost like, you know, it was some, it was catastrophic. It was like 60% loss or something <laughs> to the coconut because we just went so heavy on it. Oh, but, um, brutal. it was, it was worth it. It, I, it was one of the, in my opinion, it was the best coconut beer ever out of the veil. So, um, that, I, the blend of the un, un, uh, toasted and toasted might be the way to go, but I think an overall character of, of aroma, flavor, and adequate volume, yeah. uh, for yeah. us, it's untoasted. Do you find that uh, different alcohol ABV levels of these beers as you push them on? Because you are also conditioning, uh, you know, beers, smaller beers and smaller, quicker sour beers on fruit in addition to uh, conditioning big beers on those. Do you find that that alcohol ABV level impacts your extraction in any way? That's funny you say that. We were literally just having this conversation today. Um, so we just put a bourbon barrel aged imperial stout on 1,200 pounds of Oreo cookies, the tote that I had shared yeah, you. Yeah, yeah. And um, we, that beer that we packaged today or transferred over to Bright Tank off of the Oreos is the most Oreo forward beer we've ever made. It was the first time we had ever put Oreos in an Imperial style. Hmm. We had used it in our base uh, chocolate milk stout called Hornswoggler that, is, that comes in around 7% ABV. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we use that very frequently in that beer. But it was the first time we had used... Um, the Oreos in an imperial version of any type of stout. Right. Uh, so 10, 10% ABV or plus. Um, so this one was probably about 13 or 14% post barrel aging. Um, so it is this insane, the Oreo character that for, to me that we're getting in this. And I think it truly is because of the, the ABV of the base beer. You know, I think that it's essentially like a tincture, right? So right. like you're just getting more extraction because of the higher ABV. Um, yeah, but I definitely agree with that. I think the higher the ABV, the, the more extraction you get out of that, uh, out of these adjuncts. Interesting. And I mean, there's obviously no rules as to how long or what, because these are all conditional and you just have to taste them as you're going, you know, come across it. But that is kind of, we have been kind of trying to think about that and 
how that might impact even the volumes that you need to because I mean you're talking about adding expensive ingredients to these beers too yeah. packaged goods and, and processed foods like Oreos are not exactly cheap ingredients to throw in and bulk in there and so if you could use a little bit less of them and uh, and take a benefit of that in a big high ABV beer then it's probably going to be more efficient you'll lose less beer that way and and everything else yeah. are there any uh, you know kind of you know, while you are move, pushing things into the tank do you uh, use any tricks to kind of improve extraction from some of these ingredients not necessarily um, we're, we're pretty straightforward when it comes to uh, you know racking on top of uh, adjuncts um, if so for instance if we're doing like a horn swaggler like a, we're gonna do an adjunct version of horn swaggler we do it in the fermenter in secondary fermentation you know so we'll dump off all the yeast add the add the um, adjuncts to the base beer in the fermenter and just kind of rouse up with right, CO2 right. for a, like every day for a few days, four or five days, something like that. Um, when it comes to racking onto a tank that already has adjuncts, if say it's a barrel aged beer and we put, you know, a ton of vanilla beans and cocoa nibs in a tank, you know, sanitize the tank, throw the adjuncts in, purge the tank, then rack on top of that. And then we kind of do the same thing. We'll just kind of rouse up with CO2. Yeah. We don't really do the recirculation um, right. with like, or a spin mot or whatever um, some folks do. Um, we have done it before. It does kind of work, but it's kind of just the way that we do things. It's just kind of the way that we do things. What's comfortable for us, what um, uh, fits our schedule, our busy schedule, because we're constantly trying to do like 20 things at once. Yeah. Um, so, our method may not be the the, the most efficient method uh, or the correct with method. I don't think there's a correct method. I think whatever works for you works for you, um, and that's what really works for us is just kind of adding it in secondary or if it's post-barrel uh, aging or something, just adding it to a tank and racking it onto it. It's cutting-edge science and how yeah. to add Oreos into oh, beers. Yeah. So, uh, oh, yeah. No, I love that's it. That's what we're here to do is yeah. just release the Oreo secrets. <laughs> All the Oreo secrets that everyone was always wondering about. Um, what other are there the other crazy ingredients that have just been out of left field that you've really had fun with and found interesting ways of adding those? Yeah, so um, I'm gonna pour a little more beer while you oh, give yeah, me an answer. Please to that. do, yeah. So um, I'll pour you some actually. So we we recently did a beer um, that had um, activated charcoal in it. Oh yeah. Um, so it was a kettle soured beer with lactose and lemonade. So we were trying to do like a charcoal lemonade kind of vibe. Um, so that was really interesting just yeah. to see that, you know, and just the, the, the mind trick that that kind of beverage in general, you know, provides, right. you know, right. like when you have it, when you have a standard non-alcoholic version at like your local, local juice shop or something like that. And you have a charcoal lemonade. It's just like crazy. It tastes like lemonade, but it's black, you know, it's, right. it's really just weird looking. How do you keep it in suspension? Um, it just did. Just does. You know? oh, okay. Yeah, we kind of did the huh. same thing. We treated it as if it was like an adjunct. So we just added it when we added all the fruit, yeah. um, uh, the lemon puree and lemon juice. And then we just kind of roused it for a few days, allowed it to re-ferment. And then it just stayed black. It was crazy. It just huh. kind of stayed in suspension. Um, don't know. I didn't, <laughs> I, so I, I'm not a scientist. I consider myself an artist. I'm not a scientist. So, uh, yeah, I... I don't know, so, but it's stayed in suspension for sure. Um, so that was fun. Huh. I was really, really working on this one type of beer that this is kind of proprietary, but not really proprietary. Um, and I could, so I was trying to make a glow in the dark beer. I was trying to make this uh, black light uh, reactive beer. 
um, UV reactive beer. And I did all this research on what I could do to make this beer glow in the dark. And um, I found a company that um, sells edible glow in the dark um, stuff, basically. Sure, I'll just sure. leave it at that. Um, so I found this FDA company. FDA approved? Uh, they claimed it was, but it was it was kind of weird. So yeah, I did yeah. all these really. I had to did order all these, from some factory in Eastern Europe. Right? It was super strange, yeah. and then like uh, the communication was weird, and like I I got some samples, and we were bench testing it, and it was awesome, and I was loving it, and I was so excited about this glow in the dark beer. Yeah, and um, then I I just was reading more about it, and then I just I kept bugging the guy uh, who I was in contact with there. And uh, I was like, can you give me like a spec sheet on this or something? And you know, I just want to know what the ingredients are, you know. And he was giving me the whole proprietary thing. <laughs> and I was like, well, I just really need to know if we can consume this in large quantities, you know. And uh, he was like, oh, well, I got to talk to the lab. And it just got really weird and like sketchy and it kind of fell off. Um, but I mean, maybe it, maybe he'll get back to me one day. I'm waiting for my dude <laughs> to get back to me and let me know that it's safe to drink. If it is, then UV beer is coming your way because it was sick when we were bench yeah, testing yeah. it. We You're had so much fun. Put some new black it. lights into the uh, into the uh, tap room just to to make the the beer come alive. Oh my gosh! I'll have to send you pictures because it, it's mind blowing. <laughs> All right, uh, <laughs> glow in the dark beer. That's like what pains me. That's what I'm trying to do in life. Glow in the dark beer. <laughs> Your That's parents it. must be so proud, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, you know, which is so interesting because you know when you look at the veil as a whole, you know it really is that study in contrast. You know, yeah. it's a cool, artful space. You know, it looks like uh, you know a, a Prada uh, clothing store from <laughs> uh, you know Madison Avenue in New York. Actually, probably not even that. Probably Chelsea or uh, you know further south. Um, that's know, a huge compliment because that's what we were shooting for. It, it looks, <laughs> I mean, you know, from the weird taxidermy I mean, animals to this kind of polished concrete. I mean, it's just, it's stunning. It's gorgeous, you know, Thank you. and it's weird. And it's also compelling because it's weird. Um, you know, and then you taste these beers that are made with Oreos, but then you also have this other, you know, highly traditional side of what you do. Let's talk a little bit about that. You know, you mentioned that first beer is a spontaneous beer, uh, and you brewed a whole bunch of spontaneous beers, you know, right off the bat as you started the brewery, right before the weather started getting too warm to make those beers. Uh, obviously you paid your, uh, you know, you did an internship with Cantillon and that kind of Lambic and Goose tradition is, uh, influential on you and you wanted to, you know create a beer here that is like that, that is not that, but it is like that and inspired by that. Um, talk to me a little bit about how you went about doing that and what kind of changes you might have had to make to that to make it work within the environment that you're in here in Richmond. So yeah, in terms of changes, there were no real changes that were done. So um, it's interesting, you know, a lot of people have this um, romantic vision of uh, you know, spontaneous fermentation being in some orchard or cherry, you know, tree around, surrounded by cherry trees or something like that. Um, and we had this question a lot before we opened, you know, oh, don't you need to be around some apple orchard or in like some winery or something and be in the nature to, to capture this microflora that's going to be adequate to ferment your beer? 
And um, the funny thing is that if if you've ever been to Cantillon, it's not in an orchard. <laughs> it's like right. in a very heavily urban area sure. um, with buses driving right by and planes flying very low over the space. <laughs> it's, it's very urban, you know? Sure. And they're making some of the finest lambic in the, whole world, in the entire world. Yeah. Um, and some of my favorite personal lambics. And not because I'm biased. But, um, yeah, so it's... Uh, it, it it's not i don't think it's necessary to be in this very you know nature forward natural trees everywhere you know uh place to capture microflora right um so if cantillon my thought was if cantillon can do this in an urban setting so can we sure um so there wasn't much change that was needed or right. done um in terms of how we produce our uh spontaneously fermented lambic inspired beer so um, but yeah, so I, I fell in love like I fell in love with lambic late. So the fir- when I first started getting into brewing, I started getting into beer trading too. I was definitely a beer trader, you know, um, and I was really excited trying to get bottles of Dark Lord and uh, you know Pliny the Elder and you know all this stuff. And then you know I, I did a trade with somebody um, who gave me some Pliny the Elder, and you know, which I love that beer, still love that beer. And gave me a bottle of like one of their sour beers. I never had a sour beer in my life. And I just was thrown off by it. You know, I was off. I was like, what is this? Oh, you know, I'm not, I know, I'm not into this. <laughs> right, <laughs> I mean, just right. being honest at, at sure, the time, because sure. my palate wasn't, uh, it hadn't evolved. You know, I didn't know this to be beer. I think all of us who love those kinds of beers now have that same experience. That first like, no, that's not my thing. For and, sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then I, it's I slowly, a learned, it's a learned, uh, appreciation. Exactly. And I think the first beer that the first true wild, funky, sour beer that I had that I really enjoyed was Fafoon by Cantillon. Uh, so the apricot lambic. Right. And, um, that opened my eyes to what sour beer could be in wild beer and, uh, you know, acid and beer. So, um, so I I went back to that beer that from Russian River and loved it, you know. And it was probably a year or so after the first yeah. time I had had it, you know. Right. Um, but uh, yeah. So uh, anyway, so I learned about lambic kind of late, and um, I just fell in love with it, you know, head over heels. And I prefer always preferred lambic over traditional wild beers um, or mixed fermentation beers. I just preferred the extra funk and, uh, you know, just kind of like that musty cellar character to them. Sure. Um, that was always just my personal palate preference, you know. Um, so I just fell in love with Lambic. So when I started brewing and getting into the brewing industry, um, it was the most intriguing thing to me because there was no breweries in my area that was making that type of beer. And I couldn't even ask anybody about it. No one could tell me about it. Only thing I could learn about was online. And even that stuff was just piecemealed together of people randomly asking questions or knowing people who knew somebody uh, who sure. used to work at Cantheon. You right, know, like right. All these things. So, um, A lot of mystery and a lot of misdirection and not a sure. lot of facts. Exactly. Yeah. And it was a lot super, of romantic notions. Yeah. Right. Right. And it was super intriguing to me. That was the, the sure. style that I couldn't, I, I had no access to. I couldn't learn about that. Yeah. Um, so, and when I, when I first met Jean in summer of 2012, at that time in the States, there was only a handful of breweries that were, that had a cool ship and that were doing spontaneous fermentation. You know, it was Allagash. It was, you know, you know, Vinnie Russian river. Um, and a handful of others, but nobody really 
was like, I mean, right. Alagash probably was the ones that were the trailblazers of trying to do a traditional style Lambic beer um, inspired, I guess, because not technically Lambic in, in Maine, but um, in in the States, you know? Um, right. So with the turban mash and the aged leaf and all that stuff. So it was uh, very um, intriguing to me, and I wanted to learn more about that style. So, you know, going over to Belgium and learning the true way to make Lambic, um, it, that, that was what I wanted to do at some point in time. I wanted to brew that beer. And when I was there, I had no idea I was going to start a brewery, never even wanted to start a brewery. I just wanted to be able to learn more about it and make those kind of beers somewhere, anywhere. Anywhere that would let me, <laughs> I was. I wanted to do that. That sure. was that was my goal at that time, was to brew, uh, turbid mash, spontaneous lambic inspired beer. That was my goal. So, um, yeah. So when I went over there, I was just a sponge. You know, I was soaking up as much information as possible. I walked around with a little notebook. Jean encouraged me to ask as many questions as possible and write as many notes as possible. Um, so I did just that, and I asked every single tiny question that I could about everything. Why does that look that way? <laughs> you know, what, <laughs> right, right. What, why does it? Why do you stack the barrels this way? You know, like all every tiny little question. You know, what what would happen if you did twenty percent unmalted wheat and eighty percent pilsner malt? You know, like all these questions. Um, so um, I learned as much as I possibly could, and Jean was very supportive and um, encouraged me to, again, take notes and bring the knowledge I had, I, he had given to me, because he himself says, there's no secrets, I have no secrets, there's no secrets in Lambic, I will t- tell you whatever you ask. Uh, at least he said that to me. Um, so um, I took all of that information in like a sponge, and um, he's an incredible mentor, and um, he kind of paved the way for me and taught me a lot. And, you know, we don't have the same system. He has a very intricate system with Diaz where he has a, um, two kettles and they're on the second floor and the mash tun's on the first floor and he has like this belt-driven pump and everything. Uh, so it's a very old school uh, brewing system. So our system is definitely modified <laughs> and current and modern. Um, so um, our process is similar to his process, but it's modified for our equipment. Um, so it's, uh, but it is as traditional as it can be, and it is close to the Cantillon uh, turbid mash schedule as possible, um, just slightly altered for our modern equipment. So I guess that's the only change that we really made, is that we had to alter the, the traditional turbid mash schedule to fit our modern equipment. Sure. But um, other than that, there was no change. Um, talk to me about ingredients. Uh, where you know where you do you find that the malt that you are sourcing for this uh, impacts the flavor of yours, or are you buying from the same monsters uh, that they are there? Uh, talk to me about your age hops program a little bit because you know clearly there are going to be some sort of differences in the way that these ingredients express themselves. Yeah, for sure. So um, we just kind of buy um, malt um, from our our standard malt supplier yeah um so we actually use vireman pilsner pilsner malt uh-huh. um so our grist case our, our grist um bill for the the spontaneous firm uh, fermented lambic inspired beer is pretty simplistic 60 40 um 60 percent uh vireman pilsner uh 40 percent raw unmalted wheat um so right there that is not the same malt that they sure. use they use a belgian sourced organic malt um 
um, that I know of, and I hope I'm pretty certain they still use that. Um, but when I was there, that's what they used. So, um, so there's difference in terms of malt. So we are getting German malt, and we're getting unmalted wheat from the Midwest. Um, I would like, and I'm hoping this year that we're going to be able to move to Virginia, um, grown unmalted wheat. Hmm. I don't know if we'll ever get to the Pilsner thing, (laughs) but, um, I would like to at least have Virginia grown unmalted wheat in our beer. So that is what my goal is for just for the romantic story and attachment to the terroir for sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and just supporting local economy too, you know what I mean? And other, um, uh, producers, but. Um, so yeah, so there's that, uh, in terms of the malt profile, in terms of hops, um, we have a, what we call a house blend. Um, so what I did was actually back in 2015, um, when we were starting our conversations with, um, hop suppliers, we were, um, we, I, I was asking them, you know, oh, we're estimating we're going to use this much citra, this much mosaic. We're going to make all these IPAs and all this stuff. Right. And I was like, Oh yeah. And by the way, um, do you have any old boxes of hops, leaf hop? And they're like, what? You know? And I'd be like, yeah, you, I'll take whatever you got. And as old as 2009 and as young as 2013 or 14 at the time, you know, it was only one or two years old. Yeah. And I was like, you know, they can come in mylar bags. I'll, ha- I'll process them myself. And they were like, okay. So I bought a bunch of boxes and then I um, actually got a local brewery to loan me. This was while we we're in the planning phases and build out of our brewery got our local brewery to uh, loan me some grain bags. So I would cut all the Mylar bags, dump them into the grain bags, and then just duct tape them back up. And then I'd stick them in my, in my friend's attic and, and where it was really hot and dry. And we put a dehumidifier up there too to make them even more dry. <laughs> and we would just kind of let them age there, right? So that's what we did for the first few years when we didn't have a, an actual location for them. Um, and then when we acquired this, the Funkos facility, our wild barrel storage facility, this is where we stored them. So um, at that, uh, a few years into, or a year or so into brewing, actually right before, now that I'm thinking about it, I forgot about this, right before we started brewing, um, I met uh, Trevor from DeGarde um, when I actually went out to Oregon to um, meet with uh, Willamette Valley Hops to just start a relationship. Um, I met Trevor, he just let me come by, I just shot him an email and he was like, yeah, come on by. So he was a gracious host, let me come through and bug him on a day when he was busy and I was just some guy that was about to start a brewery, another guy. One of those guys. Yeah, one yeah. of those guys. And, you know, he was nice enough to let me come in. And then he uh, he had all these bales of hops laying around and I was like, man, you got so much hops. He was like, yeah, I just bought a bunch of old bales and, you know, I just age them. And I was like, hey, well, if you're ever going to let me go, you know, he was like, oh, just email me. I'll send you some. So actually, our first uh, a good portion of a good amount of volume that we have that we received from our age hops were from Trevor. So we actually got some 2011 bales from Trevor in 2000 and uh, beginning of 2016. Um, so and then we just allowed that old other stuff that I purchased from the the hop supplier originally to just kind of age in the grain bags. So. Um, so later on too, we bought some old, uh, fresher bales, you know, they were still about two years old, but you know, um, we just bought as many bales as possible to kind of age and dry ourselves. So we did a blend, we, we have this house blend. Um, so the house blend is a blend of age, uh, aged leaf hops. We only use leaf tops, leaf hops. We don't use pellets. And, um, the youngest 
we have currently is probably 2006 or 2017 crop year. And the oldest that's a part of the blend is 2009. So between 11 and three or four years old, three or four years old to 11 years old is the, is what's inside the blend. And then it's all German varietals. Um, so, or European varietals. Um, so it's a uh, Tetanang, Hallertau middle fruit, um, Czech Saz, um, uh, target, um, and two or three others. Um, yeah, so we just kind of, we have these big giant totes that we just pour them all in. We break up all the bales, pull out majority of the stems, um, and we just break them all up. And then we just kind of aerate them every month or so. Uh, we just kind of take like a, like a hoe and just kind of pick them up and, and get the green stuff on top and, you know, just allow them to dry out, oxidize. Um, and then it's just all homogenized into this house blend. So instead of being like, okay, hey, you know, let me, let me get 10 pounds of a 2012 Target. And then the next batch you do is, you know, 10 pounds of 2014 Holler, Hollertown Middle Fruit, you know. So you get these two different profiles. But instead, we decided that we would just blend them all together to get one cohesive um, hop character. That's really, I like that approach. I love it. It's almost like a Solera method for your hops yeah, where a sure. little bit comes out, a little more goes in, and it all gets kind of spun into to one thing. Um, but in terms of, you're right, building a house flavor and a profile for the beer that you make and creating a character that people can identify with what you do, that definitely would keep it more consistent. And uh, you know, even though you're brewing different kinds of beers that ultimately express with different kinds of ingredients in them, kind of creates a common thread and uh, you know one piece that is relatively consistent and aligned sure. through those. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> let's talk about the the next process. So you go through this brewing process. You brew your turbid mash. You pipe it up to the cool ship that you've built in a little room on the roof of the brewery. And, and for a startup brewery, I mean, you went through a very expensive, extensive build out to reinforce a ceiling, um, you know, to pour a concrete floor that can sustain and hold the weight of all of this liquid that's up on the roof of this building that was not built for that kind of weight. Um, you built a pump system to pump everything up there onto the top and a louver system with screened in windows in this whole custom built little room, um, you know, just in order to make some spontaneous beer uh, and a bunch of beer that you then wouldn't sell for a few years. Um, number one, how do you convince your business partners that this is a good idea? And, uh, you know, number two, like how that, I mean, that's crazy. <laughs> and number two, that's crazy. You're not I mean, wrong. I mean, You're from, not wrong. from any business perspective, that's insane. Come on. You're not wrong. You're yeah. not wrong at all. So <laughs> first off, um, so again, I'm very fortunate that my business partners were kind of letting me have the free reins on this sure, and allowing sure. me to be creative and make the beers that, that I was passionate about. Because they were also in turn passionate about the beers that I was too. So we were all on the same page. So... But when it came down to it is that was the, kind of the core of what the veil is, right? So the name of the veil came from my time when I was at Cantillon. I was, it was one morning I was walking around the barrel storage facility or just where the barrels were, where Jean and I were just kind of talking about ter, uh, spontaneous fermentation. And then inside of the barrel, there um, there's a development of like a protein-based membrane that develops inside um, that is called a pellicle. I'm sure you're familiar with. Sure. Um, so he was just telling me that his friends in Italy that make natural wine, they, um, through their process, a pellicle also grows within the barrels. And he said that the Italian wine, natural winemakers in Italy, or yeah, uh, call 
their pellicles a veil. So that's where the name the veil came from. So it's deeply ingrained into the name of the veil, spontaneous fermentation. Again, go back to where I was when my first time and I was at Cantillon. I just wanted to make brew spontaneous beer, right? So that's all I wanted to do. I didn't even really want to open a brewery. <laughs> like even up until like day one, <laughs> like of, of, all right, you know, here we go. Here comes demo. I didn't really want to do it. You know what I mean? It was my best option. And I, I trusted the guys that I partnered up with and, you know, I was just going to go for it. You know, yeah, I, I had yeah. no, bre- I had no management uh, experience other than like just basic stuff and working sure. in my previous jobs. Um, never was a head brewer, uh, any of that stuff. Um, so I didn't know what I was doing at all, but I knew that I wanted to make spontaneous beer in Virginia. It was important to me. Um, it was important to, to who I was, um, where I came from, um, in terms of brewing as a young brewer. Um, you know, I just dove right in without home brewing, learning about ingredients and styles and started beer trading, hated sour beer and wild beer in the beginning, fell in love with it and just learned about it. And, pushed myself to to get to the top of these producers <laughs> to to learn from them and ask questions yeah and yeah. it it was who i am on the inside at that point was to make spontaneous beer for myself um so it was important to me from the beginning and my my business partners knew it and my business partners wanted to be involved with something that was different for Virginia. Right, they wanted right. to be involved with something that had never been done in Virginia, um, which is not fully true. There's a few breweries that were actually experimenting with spontaneous fermentation before we opened. Sure. So I'm not going to say we're the trailblazers here. Um, but we definitely were one of the largest uh, commercial um, cool ships in the state at the time when we opened. Mm-hmm. And we were doing as traditional as possible, turbid mass, aged tops, all that stuff. And it, you know, it didn't, it didn't take Nostradamus to kind of foresee this future where local is such an important piece of craft beer, where that idea of local is something that connects consumers to makers of those things. And there's really nothing more that tells more of a local story than something like spontaneous beer that's brewed right. with you know, if it, if it's possible, local or regional ingredients and fermented with the local terroir. Totally. You know, I mean, that's that that sells and connects that story, and you know, then maybe pre- in a broader sense, creates a seriousness that allows you to play in some of the other elements of the business as well. For sure. Also, so let's, let's one, talk, I mean, one quick thing yeah. though, I I want to can I want to also add there. Um, from a selfish standpoint, another reason why I wanted to make spontaneous beer in, in Richmond, Virginia, is because I just wanted to drink it. Um, at the time, sure, sure. at the time, it was not easy to get a bottle of Cantillon. It was yeah, not yeah. easy to get a bottle of Dre Fontaine. It was not easy to even get a bottle of Tilcan. Even if you did, uh, it was expensive. You know, sure, it was twenty, sure. thirty dollars for a bottle, even for just standard goose, non-fruited. So uh, that was another selfish reason on why I wanted yeah. to make these beers because it's one of my favorite styles to drink, and um, I wanted to be able to drink it and have it access to it. <laughs> so that, fair enough. Fair so enough. That was a real driving factor on why I wanted to make spontaneous beer. So now with your spontaneous beer, and, and what we were just drinking was a one, two, and three-year blend, blended like a goose. Yeah. Um, talk to me a little bit about that fermentation process then as you – 
you know, take that inoculated spontaneous wort and rack it into barrels. Uh, talk to me about the condition of the barrels and then what that aging process and then uh, looks like. Yeah, for sure. So um, after the natural cooling and uh, inoculation um, from the overnight in the cool ship, we kind of do like uh, we just kind of mix it all up and uh, use a ladle actually and are homogenized. We don't have like, <laughs> a, a what's a horny tank or anything like that. Um, right. So we just kind of just take a ladle and mix it all up and kind of cool try ship to, itself. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, mean, I guess maybe that's a technically a little bit of X-ray aeration, but uh, we're definitely homogenizing the culture so that we get consistent fermentation throughout each barrel. Yeah. Um, so at that point, we drain the barrels down into freshly dumped red wine French oak barrels. Preferably from Virginia wineries, but not always from Virginia wineries. We've gotten a lot from Napa, too. Um, but and only red wine, then? We only use red wine. Yep. Okay. Um, we did... One time I filled two bourbon barrels, um, because I ran. I think I ran out of wine barrels, and then I also was like, oh, let's just be weird and fill some bourbon barrels, and that was not a good idea. <laughs> I, we dumped those. Those yeah. were just weird as crap. Okay. They were just not good. Yeah. But... Um, but yeah, so French wine, uh, French oak red wine barrels, um, they're either freshly dumped or we will reuse spontaneous barrels that previously held spontaneous fermentation only. We will not use a barrel for spontaneous fermentation um, that had a beer that we had pitched culture into. Okay. Um, so anything in those barrels that have spontaneous beer only have spontaneous microflora in those barrels. Um, and then we do so, you do a cleaning process either with the red wine barrels or with the uh, previously used spontaneous barrels. So either way, we have a, we just have a steam generator and we steam the barrels. Yeah, uh, we'll rinse the outside with hot water and then we'll just steam the interior of the barrel. That's it. That's all we do. We don't treat it with any chemical or citric sure. acid or anything like that. Um, and then we. Um, We'll just bring the barrels over to from our wild facility to like our receiving bay where kind of the drain port is from the cool ship. And then we'll just fill the barrels by gravity, actually. Um, and then we'll bring those barrels with the still work over to the funky facility, which we call our funk cost. And we allow to spontaneously ferment um, all on one level um, pre-stacking. Once they're done blowing off, then we'll stack the barrels. Um, and then they will sit in place until extraction. We do not move our barrels at all. We don't want to disturb the pellicle. Um, so we will let the barrel sit uh, from anywhere from 12 to 40 months and then blend accordingly. Uh, do you find any differences? You know, what does that range taste like? If it's the same basic recipe and the same basic ingredients, um, do you find differences in brewing season, season to season? Do you find differences in where barrels are in your warehouse? Uh, where where they're stacked, you know, top to bottom, and in, in uh, you know a stack of barrels, and you're, I'm looking at it about five high right here. Um, do you find any variation in that? You know, obviously whiskey and you know bourbon makers, you know, love to play up the difference in this. You know, same recipe, different rickhouse, and different level of you know heat, whatever. You know, that that seems to impact flavors. For you, what do you find to be the factors that affect the flavors of different barrels? So first off, I'm terrible at note keeping. So uh, (laughs) in terms of like season and stuff like that, you know, I'm not like, oh, yeah, remember this one? This was like, you know, uh, it was it was it was 41 degrees overnight. You know, ooh yeah, this one's tasting a little weird. You know, I'm not like you're an artist, not a scientist. Yeah. You know what I mean? I kind of just let it go Um, in terms of like uh, 
you know, are the, are the top barrels, you know, a little bit warmer, even though this is a climate controlled facility, um, you know, where heat rises. So the top sure. barrels are definitely exposed to a warmer temperature. Do I notice variation between the top and barrel, the, the top and bottom of that stack? Sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's mm. super weird. Yeah. Um, and then sometimes I'll have, we'll, ta- we'll be tasting through, oh, let's try some one year, one year stock. Start tasting through one year stock. And it is acidic as all get out. It is just like super acidic. And it's just like three barrels out of one stack. And then the other, you know, seven barrels are just, you know, very balanced, you know, almost no acid profile, super clean, Brett forward. Um, and then we'll have some three-year barrels that are the same way, super clean, balanced, you know, almost no acid profile to them and just Brett forward, you know. And then, but then we'll have three years that are like overly acidic and we're dumping it down the drain. You know what I mean? So it's, uh, yeah, it, it, I, I don't really know what the rhyme or reason is with that. You know, we've seen so much variation within a single batch. Um, we've seen variation between seasons. We've seen variation. And I don't know what the factor is. And I actually kind of don't even want to know um, for me personally. Um, so what I do is we extract you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 samples at a time. And we go through um, and we um, and we taste through all of those samples and we rate them one to five. And then we kind of just go through back from there and then do the blend. So, you know, okay, we're going to, you know, this one's a one. It's going to be good. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not a dumper. But, uh, you right, know, it's just right. kind of clean right now. It needs time let it be a one and it's going to maybe turn into a five next year or a four or three next year. Um, so, or this one is a, this is perfect right now. Extract it. It's not going to get any better than this. You know, this is yeah. a five, Yeah. you know, so let's get, let's take it now before it goes over the hill. Right. So that's kind of just like where we are. So our beers are, especially with our wild mixed fermentation and spontaneous beers, they're based off palate, you know, they're blended off palate. Um, there's no science involved with them. There's not, oh, this was, sure. oh, you know, we, we uh, racked this one in uh, and it was a 40, 41 degree night. You know, this is going to be a doozy. You know, it's, I can't wait for this one in 18 months on, in four days. It's going to be incredible. You know, it's not like that. It's just sure, sure. going through the stock and tasting what tastes right um, to make a beer that we envision to be the brand that we envision it to be. Um, so, it's it's important to us to to let our our palates kind of drive that ship. Does that palate also drive decisions about beers that express themselves with fruit? You know, now, you know, you're taking some of this stock and you're also making you know different fruited expressions. You mentioned Fafoon is you know, from Cantillon as being one of those fundamental you know beers that change your perception of sour beer. Um, you make your own versions of these kinds of, you know, fruited beers. How do you make that selection about barrel stock that goes into it and then start working with that fruit uh, and those various fruits in order to create fruited expressions of these beers? Yeah, so with our fruited wild beer, what we do is, you know, we taste through, uh, you know, say we're tasting through this just wheat forward mixed fermentation beer that has a blend of Brett and Saccharomyces inoculated with our house culture, uh, all in, you know, uh, Sauvignon Blanc barrels, right? So we taste through this whole stack of 10. Uh, again, we don't really use punchins or fooders, by the way, too. Um, we, we primarily use just standard size wine barrels. Mm-hmm. I like the character of them. I like the variation. Um, that's just me personally. Sure. So easier. And I should for, clarify, I, those beers aren't, aren't necessarily all spontaneous, are they? Uh, right. Yes, yes. Okay. 
Yeah, so we do a lot. We do a fair amount of uh, mixed fermentation where okay. we're actually pitching cultures sure, too. Sure. Um, so farmhouse inspired beer. I mean, that that term is kind of all over the place and sure. means so many things. You know what I mean? It's like lager. You know what sure, I mean? Like sure. uh, or ale or something at this point. You know what I mean? Sure. Yeah. So uh, we try not to say farmhouse. Sounds and, authentic, though. Farmhouse? Yeah, right? It sounds so real. We're also in so like, rustic. some of the most urban space ever, so there's no farmhouse anywhere around us. <laughs> so we're, we're not making farmhouse beers. You know, we, we make, we call it, we, uh, we, we have a friendly little term that we call, we call mixed fermies. Um, so we actually got that trademarked. So, uh, yeah, so our mixed fermy beers, um, our pitched beer. So we pitch culture into them, you know, Saccharomyces, Britannomyces, uh, house culture, all that stuff. Um, so, yeah. So when we do a stack of, uh, you know, just again, hypothetically, let's say it's heavily white, uh, weeded. Um, it has, you know, Saison DuPont and, you know, whatever this Brett strain is. And then we inoculate with our house culture. It's a blend of so many different things. Um, then it's got, and it's all on Sauvignon Blanc barrels. We got 10 barrels. Uh, we go through, we'll taste through all the barrels. Three, four, five of those are amazing. They're blowing our minds. Wow, so good. Can't believe it. I love this. Bottle it as is. So there's, and then there's two, three, four that are solid, but nothing special, right? So there's, there's, there's uh, some nuance there. Nice oak character, balanced acidity, just kind of one dimensional, right? This would make a great base for fruit beer. You know, so that's kind of how we do our fruit beers. We allow that to be a complement to the fruit and vice versa. So the fruit complements the, the, um, the straightforward kind of one-dimensional based mixed fermentation beer. You know, so sure. that's kind of what we do with our fruit beers. So the barrels that we use and the stock that we use for the fruit beer may not be... Um, they may not be the, the finest expression of that brand, but they're not bad, you know? Uh, sure. They're just, like, not special on their own, you know what I mean? They need yeah, a little yeah. something extra. So we, there's usually, at least, if we have 10 barrels, I guarantee you, almost every time, one to two barrels we're dumping because there's something wrong with sure. it or it's just too acidic. Like, I, right, right. We, we, with our beers, we... Personally, I believe our beers are balanced in terms of acidity. Um, so when we try to keep them that way, we try to keep them that way for drinkability. So the, if a beer is too acidic, it's getting dumped to me. I'm not the one to, oh, let's blend it out. You know what I mean? That's not me. If it doesn't taste like something I'm going to drink on its own, then it's not making the cut. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that's kind of the, the, the mindset behind fruited versus unfruited for any wild barrel fermented beer that what we What does do. that fruiting process look like for you? How do you go about it? Are you adding in wood? Do you, you know, rack out into external tanks? Um, do you punch down? I mean, obviously this will change, you know, depending on which fruit you're using. Uh, how do you make some of those fruit selection choices? Uh, you know, in particular, I'm thinking about a beer that we just reviewed in our Funk and Fruit issue for Craft Beer and Brewing, uh, Vast One. And I've just found that richness and deepness and, like, nuttiness of the cherry character to be something that I don't taste often in American fruited wild beers. Um, and I'm, so I'm curious in thinking about that from your perspective, what that process looks like. So we um, we never have fruited inside of oak yet. Um, I'd like to, yeah. but we've never done it yet. Um, so currently, what we do is we will take um, IQF, uh, you know, frozen f whole fruit. We've 
I think there's only been one beer that we've ever put puree in for huh. a mixed fermentation beer. Everything is whole fruit. Okay. Uh, we always do that. Um, so, But frozen fruit, IQF. Frozen, yeah. yes. We've done some fresh, not really. Uh, there's no reason why we're not doing fresh versus IQF, but it's primarily for availability purposes. You know sure. what I mean? Like sometimes we'll just be randomly on a Thursday uh, just tasting through barrels and be like, oh, oh this, this is fire. You know, like we need to bottle this as is. Yeah. But these three, let's put it on blackberries and blueberries, you know? Right. It's not blackberry or blueberry season, so I'm sure, going to get sure. frozen blackberries and blueberries, you know? But it's whole fruit, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So we will throw that in there. Um, but anyway, so nine times out of ten, we just extract onto the fruit that's in a tote. So uh, we, we call them totes. They're just an external stainless tank that has a false bottom in it. Um, so we'll, we'll throw the fruit in, purge the tank, sanitize the tank, of course. Uh, throw the fruit in, into the, in onto the false bottom, purge the tank with CO2, and then just rack on top of sure, the fruit. Sure. And then we've experimented with all types of um, all types of uh, lengths of fermentation. You know, we've tried five days, and then the bottles explode. <laughs> you know, we've tried you know four sure, months, sure. and then we're like, oh crap, that was oxidized. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So yeah. we we've tried all different lengths of fermentation. Um, for us, refermentation on the fruit. Yeah. Um, for us, the sweet spot's probably six weeks, okay. six to eight weeks max. Um, but yeah, so, and in terms of what fruit we want to use, um, so we do actually work with a local um, fruit supplier um, called Agriberry, and we try to use as much local fruit, whole fruit as possible. Mm. And they freeze it and, and store it for us too. Um, so we use, so now what we're actually trying to do is we dedicate our fruit to our local fruit, to spontaneous beers. Um, so any of the non-spontaneous beers are typically fi- are using um, are utilizing just IQF that we're purchasing from the local supplier, but they're not local fruit. You know, we're getting blueberries from North Carolina, huckleberries from pe- Pacific Northwest, blackberries from I don't even know where. So you know what I mean? Sure. Um, so uh, cherries from Greece. You know, we're just getting from everywhere. So, uh, but anyway, so, uh, yeah, so the, the local stuff is primarily for spontaneous and then the other stuff is just for whatever. Um, but yeah, so we've done a few punch downs. I don't know if that really is, uh, beneficial. Um, we've seen, we've gotten good results from punch downs. We've gotten good results without punch downs. Um, it's, uh, always scary when you're introducing oxygen, opening the tank and all that kind of stuff, especially with these delicate, uh, mixed fermentation beers. Sure. Um, so we try not to do punch downs, but every once in a while we'll do it, you know, get a little bit more extraction out of it or, mm-hmm. you know, um, but, uh, yeah. So, and then just deciding what we have, um, decide or de- de- deciding which, which fruit goes into which beer. Um, so time, a lot of times it's, um, the decision is made based on if it's a if it's a spontaneous beer, it's what's available left with our local fruit supplier. Um, if it's not spontaneous, it's like it's kind of like what have we not done before? <laughs> so it's trying to just try different fruit combinations. Oh, we haven't done strawberries and blueberries yet. Let's give it a whirl. Let's see yeah, how it goes yeah. for us. You know, um, but sometimes it's like 
oh man, this beer would be incredible if it was just bombed out with blueberries. You know what I mean? So this is a this is a straight up blueberry beer. I know it. You know what I mean? You yeah. already know it in your heart that this is a blueberry beer. But that's actually not as common as like which combination haven't we done yet, guys? You know what I mean? Let's so, roll our magic dice and yeah. see which combination. Yeah, yeah. More yeah. learning. More sure, experimentation. Sure. What ta- what what fruits taste well together, you know, and, yeah. and complement each other and go well with this type of beer. This this mixed fermentation, um, you know, oak forward, slightly acidic, funky beer. What what fruit blend is the best fruit blend for our personal palates? You so, know? have you had some that didn't work out where you've had to kind of you know pivot on that and either blend something in again or or make a move on it? Uh, not necessarily, honestly. Cool. Um, some it's always turned out to be acceptable in our eyes. You know, maybe maybe it's not to our personal preference. Like maybe we're like, oh man, that one that one is a sour sour lad. You know, what yeah, I mean, that yeah. one came out a little sour. Um, so, but somebody's gonna like it. You know what I mean? Somebody out there likes sour beer. You know, and we'll be like, all right, let's give it a shot and yeah. let it let it out into the wild. No pun intended. Am I right? Ooh, ooh, and ooh. then. Uh, so give them give them the super acidic beer, and then we, we look online and it's receiving incredible reviews, and we're like, yeah, see, somebody somebody really liked acidic beer, you know. So if you sometimes des- if you describe it correctly, uh, so that people can make the choices that fit their taste, then yeah, yeah, for sure. And you know, we also have to remember too that um, you know, so we we are not our customers. We're getting our beer at employee discount. You know what I mean? So sure, we're, sure. we are not the ones that are paying our bills. We are not the ones that are keeping the lights on. Right. You know, we do have to keep our, our fan base and customers in, in mind and what they seem to purchase the most and, and what they really enjoy and, and what kind of reviews they're giving, what beers. So we also do keep that in mind too, you know? Yeah. So we have to remember that we're not just making beer for ourselves, that we're making beer for, for everyone to enjoy. But at the end of the day, we have to still be proud of what we release and sure. something that we would consider is acceptable and drinkable to, you know, to someone. <laughs> you know what I There's mean? There's that artistic vision and that artistic vision is also balanced by the feedback from those customers. For sure. And that feedback, you know, I imagine you use it to guide future decisions and, you know, help inform the way you make decisions in the future. Um, you know, but it's always in that balance of does this fit with the vision that we want to do as well? For sure. Yeah. Um, let's get existential for a moment. Okay. Uh, you know, um, one of the questions I ask commonly on the podcast is what does success look like for you and for the veil? Ooh. How will you know when you've achieved success? Um, you know, have you achieved mm. it? Is it some thing in the future? What does that look like for you? Wow. You're just going to hit me with that. On a, it's a good place to on finish. a Tuesday evening. <laughs> I mean, it's getting late here. We've been drinking a bunch of beers. You know, if you can't wax uh, philosophical about it at this point, then you know I'm pretty sure you can. Yeah. Um, so I think it's an important question to ask. It though, is an because important I think you know there are people and there are breweries in the industry that are constantly chasing some idea of success but haven't defined it. Right. And they keep chasing and chasing and chasing. And I'm not sure that you know. They're, they never become comfortable with some idea of what the business should be, what their customers are, 
you know, or what their goals are for running a business. And so, you know, I think it's an interesting question to ask people, what does that look like? There are some folks, you know, for whom commercial success and money and fame and everything else, you know, that's their definition of success. There are folks where that creative expression and achieving something is that definition of success. There are folks that have already grown to a comfortable level where they can define success for themselves. And so I think it's a curious thing, you know, but it's something that everyone has to engage in to consider what are our goals here and when will we know that we've achieved them? I agree. Um, it's, it's definitely a difficult question for me to answer, honestly. Um, some days I think I'm the most successful guy in the world and not from a financial standpoint. Um, I'm successful because I get to go to work and do what I love and I don't have any, you know, any boss breathing down my neck and if if i you know you finally got someone that can pay you to make spontaneous beer too <laughs> exactly yeah yeah so you know i can do whatever i want and you know if one day i, I want to show up at 2 p.m and leave at five i can do that you know what i mean as as a business sure, owner sure. you know what i mean so that's successful right in some aspects um sometimes i i look at our payroll and I'm like, okay, we employ over 60 people. That's pretty cool and successful, I guess. Right. You know, to be able to create 60 different jobs is, is pretty incredible, you know? Um, so that, that's to measure success is, is so hard to define. Right. So it's, it can be so many different things to me. I don't consider like, being a billionaire successful, you know, I I guess in some aspects it is, um, but that's not like, I'm not going to be successful until I'm a billionaire. You know what I mean? Like, I think there's so many different things that we can do, um, and feelings that we can feel to be, uh, that we can consider that we're successful, right? In my opinion. So being able to just be hanging out and uh, you know in a setting with some of the production team, and I hear them, uh, hear someone over, uh, I overhear someone tell another person at this uh, event or social situation that we're in. Um, you know, it's incredible working at the Bell. I love working at the Bell. It's so much fun, and you know they really take care of us. When I hear somebody say something like that, then I'm like, man, we've achieved success. You know, we have now that brings it even further to that, like, you know, okay, yeah, we have 60 plus employees, and they seem like they're happy. You know, I I hope they're happy. You know, I. I put my heart and soul into making sure that our team is happy, you know, because I've been in situations where I have not been happy. I think every person in this world is sure, has worked sure. a, worked a job that they weren't happy at, uh, that they weren't um, they weren't appreciated, um, that their efforts weren't recognized, that they um, weren't considered when they had something to say. Um, so I, I put a lot of effort into trying to uh, change that mindset and um, also to like create a space uh, for our team that they're comfortable in and that they feel that they're taken care of and that they're considered. Every day that I walk out of the, of the brewery, every person I walk by, I tell them thank you and I say I appreciate you. And I don't say it because it's part of my script. I say it, it's because I mean it. I appreciate every single one of them because I wouldn't be who I am and the veil wouldn't be who they are without them. Um, every person plays a very integral part in the success of the veil. Um, so 
being able, I mean, so success is just hard to measure, right? So it's like, you know, we're paying our bills. Our lights are still on. We're making payroll every month. That's successful too. You know what I mean? So You're growing. You're adding yeah. locations. You're able to kind of expand that. And, and create more jobs. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that's success too, right? So Make more people happy with the beer that you make. Right. So, I mean, it, there's so many different things that could be uh, defined as successful um, in, in terms of the veil. Um, for me, um, success is, in terms of starting a business and owning a business, success for me is longevity. Um, so how can we make this brand and this brewery stand the test of time? We will never know because we don't know what the what the economy is going to be like ten years from now. We don't know if people are just going to stop drinking beer ten years from now and just go all hard seltzer on us. <laughs> you know what I mean? You never know. You never know. You never know. Sure. Um, so it's hard to say where we're all going to be five, ten, fifteen, twenty years from now. Um, but for me, our goal right now is to set ourselves up the best that we can um, in terms of longevity. Um, so if we can, if we can stand the test of time, if we can all kind of ride the wave until, you know, it's, you know, it's time to, to move on from this world, um, then to me, that is success. So I don't know if I'm successful until I, I'm, I'm gone from here and we're still open or not, but there's little things that, uh, that, that happen throughout the day that, that make me happy. And that makes me feel like I'm doing it, doing the right thing and that the veil is on the right path and that we're creating a space for people that they're, they're happy to come uh, and work at on a day-to-day basis and that customers are coming in and I walk through the tap room as I leave to go home and I just see, you know, 100 people with smiles on their face, you know, and talking about, oh my gosh, this vertigoza is insane, you know what I mean? They're, Dude, so juicy. You know what I mean? So, I mean, that's success too. So, sure, for sure. Um, I don't know. So, again, the, the definition yeah. of success yeah. in this in industry and who we are um, is is all over the place. You know what I mean? For sure. So, you know, well, I hope we can have another conversation about this in 20 years. <laughs> I and hope reflect so too. reflect back on this uh, once again. I hope so too. Um, you know, if uh, people want to learn more about The Veil, where do they learn more about you all? Uh, the most active place that uh, um, that we are a part of um, uh, for The Veil is just Instagram. So uh, we're always constantly on Instagram. Sure. The Veil Brewing. It's at The Veil Brewing. Um, so we're, we're, we post every single day on there. Uh, we have, um, a, a, a lady named Amber who runs our social media and does our photography and videography and does an amazing job. And then our director of production brewing lead, uh, Justin Anderson, um, who's our first ever, uh, production, uh, hire, uh, also known as Catboy. Uh, he, <laughs> um, so us three together, we, myself and those two, um, were kind of like our, our, um, social media team. So we put a lot of effort into, uh, you know, trying to make it fun, but informative. Um, so we, and we post every single day and, uh, we're super responsive with comments and, uh, messages and stuff like that. 
Uh, you know, we still have the face. We still have Facebook, and sure, um, we have email. Same thing with Facebook. It's at the Vale Brewing, and we have a website that we update daily too, with a uh, you know current draft list and right. to go availability, right. which is just thevalebrewing.com. So, but Instagram is probably the best way to get a hold of us and uh, and to see what's new with the Vale and uh, you know what's what's going on in our world. Um, G&D Chillers has set the standard on quality, service, and reliability. Kickstart your innovation with Old Orchard Craft Juice Concentrates. Uh, SS Brewtech has a clear goal to advance brewing equipment design, performance, and quality to the highest standards of the industry. And Fermentus is the obvious choice for beverage fermentation. If you have a chance to get to Richmond, Virginia, and pop into the Vale Tap Room, it's an experience that you won't soon forget. Uh, it's a striking, visual, uh, stimulating, wild, different, unique. Um, there is not another tap room I have been to in my uh, my career here, looking, visiting breweries, talking to brewers that is quite like it. Um, you know, it's something that should be on every serious beer fans list of places to visit. Matt Tarpey, uh, The Vale Brewing. Thanks for joining me here on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brewing.